Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness is to characterize the Christian life. We all understand that. I hope we understand it. If you don't know that, then I question whether or not you're actually a Christian. Because if anyone's going to be a forgiving person, it ought to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is all about. Forgiveness. That's what Christianity begins with. Forgiveness. The cross of Christ. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as we come to this particular text this morning, which is a challenging one, which is a hard one, which is a text that is easy for pastors to avoid, right? So we jump right in instead, right? That's how we pastors discipline ourselves. We, we tackle those texts that make us uncomfortable, and we look at them and we say, you know, maybe I'd rather not preach on that. So we go ahead and preach on it anyway. So the question that I want to ask you this morning is the question that I believe that the Lord Jesus is confronting all of us with here in this parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the question, it's a simple one. It's a simple one. Do you forgive from the heart? Do you forgive from the heart? I'm not talking about the appearance of forgiving, but forgiving from the heart. That's what the Lord Jesus is concerned with here. Forgiveness that comes from the heart, not really from the lips, but from the heart. Please listen carefully to the teaching of our Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you 
if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point of this passage is a very simple one, isn't it? Very simple. It's not one of those difficult parables where you're like, well, I'm not quite sure what the Lord is trying to say. We know exactly what he's saying here, don't we? There's no doubt. And here's what he's telling us. Those who refuse to forgive others will in no way be forgiven by God. That's what we're being warned about here. Those who refuse to forgive others will not be forgiven by God. So we therefore must be forgiving toward others. Otherwise we have no right to presume upon the grace of God and to count ourselves as being forgiven if we are not also in turn forgiving people. So that sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? The idea that we ought to be forgiving people. How hard is it to say, I forgive you anyway? That's pretty easy to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. But I think, saints, that our Lord isn't letting us off so easily in this passage. Look at verse 35, because this is key. What does he say in verse 35? He doesn't say that we must say, I forgive you to one another. That we must put on the appearance of being merciful and forgiving people. He says that we must forgive from the heart. Do you see what he's doing there? He's doing here what he does throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He's doing what he did whenever he was dealing with Pharisees and formalists, people who think righteousness consists of their appearances and conformity to man-made rules. He's cutting past those appearances which, by which we so easily and so often deceive ourselves, and he's requiring us, I would say even forcing us, to look at our hearts, to look at what's going on inside of us and our very souls. Self-examination is what he's calling us to here. To look at the heart, not just our exterior. So we all have to answer the question now, as I said at the introduction, do I have a forgiving heart? Not am I a forgiving person, do I say I forgive you to those who wrong me? Do I have a forgiving heart? Well, do you? Do you have a forgiving heart? Do you even know? We have something to talk about now, don't we? Something to consider. I think that most of us, if we're honest, I know it's true for me anyway, we tend to think of ourselves as being rather forgiving people. I doubt any of us here would say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not forgiving. <laughs> Don't cross me. You'll be in trouble. No, no one says that about themselves. Everyone says, oh, it's no problem. I'm, yes, of course I'm forgiving. Everyone likes me. I'm easy to get along with. Of course I'm forgiving. You know, Peter thought he was a forgiving guy. Peter thought he was a really forgiving guy. I think our dear apostle here was expecting to really impress Jesus when he said this. I wouldn't be surprised if he had said to the other guys, watch this. I'm paying attention. I'm learning, guys. I'm picking up on what Jesus is teaching us. Watch this. Watch how impressed he's going to be. So he says to the Lord Jesus, Lord, should I forgive my brother as many as seven times? Whoa, Peter, where's that coming from? 
All that grace. Peter, what a forgiving guy, Peter. You'd forgive your brother seven times. Now, why would he say that? Why would Peter probably expect to impress Jesus by whipping out that number seven? Well, it points to perfection, and we could say that. Okay, sure. But there was a rabbinical tradition that taught that you were only to forgive a person three times, and then you were no longer required to extend forgiveness. So it was Major League Baseball with the Pharisees. Three strikes and you're out. All right? That's how it worked. I don't think that's where the Major Leagues got their rules from, but I'm not positive on that. But that was the old rabbinical tradition. And so Peter, probably desiring to show the Lord Jesus that he was learning and understanding some things, Doubled it, more than doubled that amount. I'm not going to say just six. I'm going to say seven times. I'm going to blow the Lord's socks off with how merciful and forgiving I am. And so Peter says what he says. Should I forgive my brother's many as seven times? And the Lord Jesus does what he so often does to us when we think we've figured it out finally and tells us you haven't a clue yet, do you? And he looks at our dear apostle and says, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. Now, when the Lord Jesus said that, was he saying, no, actually the number is 490. No, that wasn't his point. His point is that forgiveness is to be limitless. Limitless. Now let me tell you, I know you're all sinners as much as I am. I know it, don't deny it, please. And when you hear that, your heart probably does the same thing my heart does. My heart does two things. On the one side, my heart says, that sounds really good as far as my relationship to God goes. Yeah, that jives with me. But when I think about this idea of limitless forgiveness with other sinners, who wrong me in so many ways and make me so mad and I'm so right for being angry with them because they're so wrong. And I see Jesus, I hear him saying to me, no, 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 your forgiveness toward them has to be limitless. Then I find my old wicked heart recoiling from what Jesus is saying here. Recoiling because I'm a sinner and I don't want to forgive. Aha, you see, the heart is revealed now. We are being confronted with who and what we really are. And who and what we really are is not forgiving people by nature, saints. We are not forgiving people by nature. We need this teaching. The fact that the Lord has to give us this parable proves to us that we are not forgiving people in general. That it does not come naturally to us. The fact of the matter is this, that the sinful human heart does not have a great capacity for forgiveness. The sinful human heart does not have a great capacity for forgiveness. Absolutely not. This passage proves it. It is most obvious in the contrast between, between the king, who I would say represents God, and the wicked servant who represents who? Not the person sitting next to you. Not liberal Democrats. You. 
always, I think R.C. Sproul Jr. says somewhere, when you're reading the parables and there are bad guys, assume you're the bad guy in the parable. That usually gives you a pretty good idea of what the parable's getting at and how you should apply it to yourself. So you're not the king. Neither am I. We're the wicked servant saints. That's, the, that's our spot. That's our character. That's who's representing us here. Yeah? Realize that. The king's capacity, which was representative of God, his capacity to forgive was virtually infinite. Virtually infinite. Let me give you an idea of why. We can break out some hard economic facts here to substantiate what I'm telling you. One denarius equal the day's wage in first century Palestine. So a man who worked typically could expect to earn one denarius for his day, for his days of work. Now 6,000 denarii, which represented 6,000 days of work, equaled, guess how much? One talent. One talent. One talent was equivalent to 6,000 days of labor. How many talents did this servant owe, brothers and sisters? How many talents did he owe? 10,000. 10,000 denarii? No, 10,000 talents. Take 10,000 times 6,000, and you'll see how many denarii that this man Oh, how many days of labor he would have to work in order to pay off his debt. And you soon discover, once you get out your calculator and plug all the numbers in, you realize that this man would never live long enough, even in ten lifetimes perhaps, to pay this debt back that he owed to his king. It might as well have been infinite. But there was no way he ever was going to pay that back to his master. And yet, the king, out of nothing but pity, forgave it all. Every dime of it, he forgave it. Breathtaking, when you think about it. What capacity for forgiveness, what depth of mercy the king demonstrated to his impoverished servant. Compare that with the wicked servant's minuscule capacity to forgive. Because remember, that represents us saints. How much was he owed by the, the poor soul he went out and found and seized and said, you're going to pay it back? Must have been a lot, right? Because if the king was so gracious to forgive 10,000 talents and he's getting all worked up about what he's owed, that must have been a horrendous amount, even greater than what he owed the king, right? No. He was owed a mere 100 denarii. That's all. A trifling sum. We're talking couch cushion change here compared to what he was forgiven, right? That's all that he was owed. Yet he wouldn't even give the other servant time to pay his debt. Wouldn't even give him a grace period. Just after being forgiven all that he was forgiven, he refused to extend the repayment time. Even MasterCard will do that at times if you ask nicely enough. But he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. 
And this revealed something about him. And what it revealed about him was the condition of his heart, that he was wicked. Notice that that is the pronouncement the king makes upon him. You wicked servant. Your true colors have been revealed. We know what you are now because of your fruit. You are wicked. And as a result of that, he was thrown into prison until he should pay it all back. And we know that would never happen. Impossible. Understand, saints, that that wicked servant definitely represents mankind in his fallen and depraved state. Because we are sons and daughters of Adam, because we are born as unregenerate sinners who do not know Christ, who are not indwelled by the Spirit, our wicked hearts are not born with a propensity for mercy and a large capacity for forgiveness. That is not our bent. It does not come to us naturally. We are all born as wicked, unforgiving servants, just like the fool in this parable. We're all born as wicked servants across the board. Don't doubt that for a moment. That's who we are at the moment we're conceived. Unforgiving servants. And a sinner may put on a good show of forgiveness. It's easy to do that because we want to be perceived as forgiving people. No one wants to be known as unforgiving. So we figure out, because our hearts are deceptive above all things and desperately sick, and who can understand its ways? Jeremiah 17, 9. We figure out ways to put on appearances, to look forgiving. But remember, Jesus isn't concerned here with appearances, but with our hearts. And the fact is that if our hearts are left in their wicked state, then our lives would not be defined by mercy and forgiveness, but by what? Well, Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, where he is describing what believers were like before they were what? Before they were washed. The washing of regeneration and the pouring out of the spirits. And what were we like prior to being given new hearts? Paul says it. We passed our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what defines the life of unbelievers outside of the church. Malice, envy, hating, being hated. No forgiveness. So the question becomes, how can we be saved from such a status? And the answer is that we have to have our capacity for forgiveness increased. We have to be given a capacity for forgiveness, one that we are not born with. It requires something that is supernatural, and I believe that Paul also addresses that there in Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. The way that we become forgiving people is not by working at it. It's by being given a new heart through the second birth. So the second birth is absolutely essential to forgiving from the heart. Because to forgive from the heart, you have to have a heart that is capable of forgiving. But to have a heart that is truly capable of forgiving, you have to have a new heart. One that has been touched and worked upon by the Spirit. So we can think of it this way, saints. It is only those who receive mercy from God, the mercy, I would say, if you want to use technical theological jargon, the mercy of regeneration of having the Spirit apply the blood of Christ to us. 
It is only those who receive the mercy from God who then have the capacity to be limitlessly merciful themselves. It is only by God's mercy that we become truly merciful. Because otherwise we're incapable of it. We can only have grace toward others when we have first received it. It's not something we can gin up on our own. And this brings us to a vital truth. A hard truth, but one that scripture confronts us with. And here it is. If your heart is unmerciful and unforgiving, then it is stone and not flesh. And don't understand me to be saying that if you struggle with unforgiveness, that you have a heart of stone rather than a heart of flesh. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if your life is characterized by unforgiveness and a lack of mercy toward others, then it is stone and not flesh. In a word, you have not been born again. This is what the Apostle John writes to us in 1 John chapter 3 and verses 14 through 15. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do you see what John is saying there? Failure to love the brethren, refusal to love the brethren is akin to murder. That includes refusing to forgive. Unforgiveness and murder have equal footing in the kingdom of God's saints. Realize that. Withholding forgiveness from someone who is seeking it is as bad as murdering them. Do not doubt that for a moment. That has to sink in. Because we like to play games sometimes. We don't have time for that. Scripture won't let us play those games. So we have to examine our hearts. We have to say, ask ourselves, am I a murderer or do I love my brothers? Have I passed from death to life? Do I forgive from the heart? Do I forgive from the heart? So tonight, you're talking about forgiving from the heart. Wonderful. What's that mean? Okay, great. It's not just putting on appearances. It's not just saying, I forgive you. There's more to it than that. What more? What do we have to look for in ourselves? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. I want to talk now about the marks of a forgiving heart. And there are three of them that I have come up with for this sermon. There may be more. We might be able to divide them up into subcategories, but we only have so much time. So three marks of a forgiving heart. Here's the first one. Brokenness over sin. Brokenness over sin. To have a forgiving heart, you must first be humbled by the sheer size, the enormity of the debt that you owe God, as well as your utter inability to pay it. You absolutely have to be confronted with that. You have to be broken and moved to desperation by the size of your own debt to God. People who fail to grasp the depth of their sin, who do not 
understand what they actually owe to God, who have not been broken and humiliated by the knowledge of their guilt before God, they are not able to forgive because they don't really understand their own need for forgiveness, you see. Notice that about the wicked servant. He obviously did not honestly grasp the size of his own debt, did he? He did not realize how great a sinner that he was. His own debt was far too small in his own eyes and we know that's true because the debt he was owed by the other servant was far too big in his eyes. You see, saints, understand that. When someone's sin against you seems unforgivable, the reason why it seems unforgivable to you is because you have lost sight of your own sin and how egregious it is and how enormous it is before God then you realize that this one offense against you is nothing but a pittance compared to the mountain of your debt. But the wicked servant did not realize that. His debt was too small in his own eyes. He was not broken and driven to despair over the immensity of his own guilt. So what happened? He became puffed up with self-righteousness because he didn't grasp his own sinfulness. He didn't think he was that bad. It's hard to imagine that that was the case, considering what he had been forgiven, but it's clear. It speaks, the facts speak for themselves, don't they? We see another example of this, which is not in a parable, which is recorded history in Luke chapter 7, in verses 41 through 47. Many of you know this account. It's Jesus speaking to Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus was in Simon's house, and then... The woman comes in, a woman that was disreputable, and begins to anoint the Lord's feet. And Jesus knows what's going on in Simon's heart because Simon is sitting there judging the woman, wondering to himself, why is Jesus letting her touch him? Doesn't he know who she is? And our Lord, being God, knew what Simon was thinking. He says to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. I have something to say to you. And what does he say to Simon? He tells them another parable similar to this one. He tells Simon the parable of, one, of a moneylender who forgives one man 500 denarii and he forgives another man 50 denarii. Big difference between those two amounts, right? 550. And the Lord Jesus then asks Simon, who loves more? Who loves more, Simon? The one who was forgiven the 500 denarii or the one who was forgiven the 50? And Simon, because he was no dummy, said, well, the man with the larger debt, duh. And the Lord just responds and says, you are correct. And he who is forgiven little loves little. You know what Jesus was saying to Simon when he told him that parable? He was saying, Simon, you have no idea of who you really are, do you? You don't know what a sinner you are. You think compared to this woman, you owe little. That's not true, Simon. You have a mountain of debt to God 
and you don't see it. And so you puff yourself up in righteousness and think yourself better than this woman. And you don't see your need for forgiveness. See, that's the problem, saints. When we don't see our sin and how big it is and how unable we are to take care of it ourselves, then we don't see our need for forgiveness. The moment our sin shrinks in our own eyes, so does the grace of God at the same time. If the grace of God is going to be big in our minds, as it ought to be, then so must our sin and our guilt. Those who underestimate the depth of their own sin overestimate the sins of others against them. You can write that down. That's a good t-shirt, maybe. Those who underestimate the depth of their own sin overestimate the sins of others against them. Whenever you're overestimating someone's sin against you, you're underestimating your own sin. So let me ask you this, heart examination time. Do you see, have you been broken by, have you been driven in desperation to Christ crucified in response to seeing the massive mountain of your own sin and guilt before God? Has that broken you and humbled you before the Lord? So that you do nothing. You realize you can do nothing but do what this wicked servant did initially. And cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I cannot save myself. I cannot repay. Lord, forgive me. Do you understand what your sin deserves? Do you understand how that sin was paid for? And most importantly, what does that knowledge do to your heart? When you think of Christ being nailed to the tree, bleeding for you... What does it do to you? Nothing? Or does it humble you? Does it fill you with joy and gratitude? The second mark of the forgiving heart. Again, there are only three, so we're almost done. The second mark is the readiness to forgive. The readiness to forgive. Those who have received God's mercy in Christ and who understand what it costs to remove their mountain of sin have a great capacity for forgiveness because they know what they themselves have been forgiven. As our Lord told Simon, he who has been forgiven much loves much. So what, how are we to respond to one another, one another then? As the people who have been forgiven through the shed blood of Christ, how are we to respond to each other when we sin against one another? Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32, it is an incredible statement. It's so easy to read over it because it's so short, but it is. it might be only an inch wide, but it's a mile deep, saints. Because the, the instruction, the command the apostle gives us in Ephesians 4.32 is that we are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Do you know what he means when he says that? Does that sink in? We are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us? How, does, how has God in Christ forgiven us? What's the promise of the new covenant? Hebrews 8.12 He remembers our sins no more. They're gone. They're removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103 verse 12 Meaning, 
that when God forgives us in Christ, our sin ceases to have any bearing upon our relationship with Him whatsoever. It is no longer a hindrance. It is no longer a roadblock. It is removed. It is gone. It is cast into the sea, out of sight, out of memory. And Paul says, that's how we are to forgive one another. Just like that. Without hesitation. And it's hard. We may get to that in a moment. It's hard to forgive like that. But that is what we are called to, saints. I sin against you. Let's say badly. I get up here and I preach a really bad sermon and I deny the Trinity or something. And then I come to my senses and I come to you afterwards and say, oh my goodness, I preached heresy. Please forgive me. And what's your response to be? We forgive you, mate. And it's done as if I'd never done it. I struggle to forgive like this. Do you? This is hard. But we have the capacity. Jesus doesn't say it's easy to forgive from the heart, does he? He just tells us we're called to do it. And we can do it. Because he's given us the capacity to do so. But this all points to our readiness to forgive. Saints, our lives have to be characterized by an eagerness to be to forgive those who have sinned against us. Think of the father of the prodigal son. How did he respond when his son came home? And his son had been a worthless scumbag to his father. His father could have said, I want nothing to do with you. I've disowned you. Get away from here, you fool, you shameful son. You obviously didn't take everything I taught you from Proverbs to heart. So I have no more use for you. No, he ran out to meet him. And he slaughtered the fattened calf didn't he? That's how we are to greet one another when we're pursuing reconciliation. That is how we are to welcome those who come to us in humility and seek forgiveness. Like that. And our flesh will fight against that and kick and scream and say, no, no, no. I don't want to forgive. And you know what you do. You walk your flesh over to the cross and you nail it there with Jesus. And say, no. This is what God has done for me. So I will do for my brother or my sister as God has done for me. Flesh, die. Die, flesh. Be eager to forgive, saints. Be ready to forgive. And that brings us to the third and final mark of the forgiven heart. An eagerness for reconciliation. An eagerness for reconciliation. What does reconciliation mean? Scripture talks about reconciliation a lot. It's one of the blessings of salvation that we have now been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. One of the promises, one of the most glorious promises of the new covenant. Reconciliation is everything because it means that we are no longer God's enemies, you see. That's what reconciliation means. That means you are moved from a position of enmity and strife and opposition into one of peace and friendship and familiarity in the most literal sense. You go from being an outsider and an enemy to being a son at the table. Communion is a picture of reconciliation. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. We were once outsiders. Strangers to the covenants of promise, alone and without God in the world, until what? Until we were reconciled to God and brought near by the blood of Christ. And now we're no longer outside, we're inside. And we're not just on friendly terms, we're not just acquaintances with God, having been reconciled to Him. We are family. We're at the table with our Father now. 
Yes? That's reconciliation. It's not just a cessation of hostility. It is a bringing in and sitting at my dinner table. That's reconciliation. Remember that. It's not just an armistice. And we have to be eager to pursue that. No more animosity. The restoration of a peaceful, friendly relationship. And saints, obviously, reconciliation cannot happen apart from, forgive, from forgiveness. You have to be willing to forgive. How can you be reconciled unless you first forgive? And here's the hard part. Here's my closing point. It's costly to forgive. It costs you something. It costs God something to forgive us. And it costs us something when we have to forgive others in so many ways. It means perhaps I don't, I don't have the wrongs that have been committed against me righted necessarily. If someone has caused me pain, how do I have that made right? Sometimes you can't. Sometimes we sin against one another in such a way that we scar one another, not physically, maybe sometimes, and those scars remain with us the rest of our days, and we have to live with them, but we live with those scars every day forgiving them and forgiving the person who gave them to us. That's what we're called to do, because it costs us something. Notice what it costs the king to forgive his wicked servant. What did it cost the king? 10,000 talents. It was not cheap. Forgiveness is not cheap, saints. What did our forgiveness cost? The precious blood of Christ, which is worth more than silver or gold. That's what our forgiveness cost God. What does it cost us to forgive one another? Well, I could stay here for a long time and, and walk through how it can be a costly thing to forgive one another. The point is we are to be eager for reconciliation, which means we are to be like the king. We are to be like our heavenly father, which means that we are eager and willing to gladly pay whatever cost is necessary for the sake of reconciliation, no matter what it costs us. And the only way a human heart can be willing to do that is the heart that knows that it has been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. Because once you live in view of the cross and what Jesus has done for us, that makes it possible to forgive. Then we have an idea of what forgiveness is. Then we know what we have been forgiven of and are therefore made willing to forgive one another. So would, could you describe your heart as being eager to be reconciled to your brothers and your sisters? Ask the Lord to give you that heart, an eagerness for reconciliation. This sermon may not apply to you immediately right now, but I can guarantee you, if the Lord tarries and he allows you to have a longer life in this world, it is going to apply to you because you're going to be sinned against. And you are going to have to forgive. And then this parable is going to rush, come rushing back to your heart and to your mind. Let it do so, saints. Be broken by your sinfulness. Be amazed by the grace of God in Christ. And be eager and quick to forgive and be reconciled to your brothers and sisters. table we're called to examine ourselves we're also commanded to discern the Lord's body we're not here to speculate about what might be happening at some subatomical level here although we are to 
confess, and we do know, we do confess this, that God ministers to us mystically in these material elements. We're not here to probe into the deep caverns of our mysterious lust, although a healthy self-examination would be normal and healthy as a prelude to our enjoyment of the Lord's Supper. And we're not here to fight with other Christians who understand the meal slightly differently than we do, although it is important for us to strive together to understand biblically all we can. Our central task here is to discern the Lord's body and to see that this body is seated all around you, all around us. This means that the meal, this means that the meal is given to us so that we might understand that we are the meal. There is one loaf and you are that loaf. We partake of the body of Christ, which means that we must be that body of Christ. But there's no way for you to be the body of Christ without coming to the conclusion that your neighbor is also that body of Christ. We partake of the meal with each other. And that's why this meal knits us together. We're all eating, drinking, meditating, listening, and singing. We're all doing it for the love of God and for the love of one another. Some of the things we in the Christian church have done to make this, make this Lord's Supper into things which can exclude little children, just like the disciples did when they kept the little children away. The Lord didn't like that. And he said that coming to the kingdom involved becoming like children. Children may not be good at metaphysics or at morbid in, in, uh, introspection, but they can see their neighbors. They can see them just like you can. So love God and love your neighbor. At the Lord's table today, all are invited who have been baptized and are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine together, we're acknowledging that we're all sinners, that we're without hope except for that sovereign mercy of God, and that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come and welcome to Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.